Word of God coming this morning from the book of the prophet Isaiah. It is page 600 in the Bible in front of you. Give you a minute to turn there. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word of the Lord. I don't know if you've been paying attention and if you've noticed, but there's been a illness going around for the past few years. 
So by now, it's, it has well-known characteristic symptoms, but those symptoms manifest themselves in different ways, in different people, in various degrees. For some, the sickness is quite crippling and serious. For others, the sickness, it, it feels more like a, kind of like a nagging, annoying presence that just kind of won't go away. Quite commonly, we've seen that it leads some people into complete isolation for some time, cut off from everybody, even the people that they love the most. And the upshot is that we could pretty confidently say that by now this sickness has affected every single person in the world in one way or another. The sickness is, of course, despair. What were you going to say? Despair has other names and associations. You could think of discouragement, depression, despondency, dejection, melancholy, misery, sadness, gloom. At heart, though, it's really simple. It's a loss of hope. And it's a universal sickness, isn't it? Every honest person, at one point or another, has looked at the brokenness of this world, has looked at the brokenness of their own life, and thought, this is, this is never going to change, is it? Even Christians are not immune to this sickness. It's possible for Christians to despair. It's possible for Christians to lose hope. This can happen when long-term, earnest, biblical prayers go unanswered, when sicknesses go unhealed, when once-cherished relationships go unreconciled, when trials come, and when those trials don't go away, sometimes despair fills the vacuum. And maybe you've had a season like that. Maybe you're in a season like that right now. A season in which, if you're honest, you've begun to feel that you are very personally being disregarded by God. Maybe, maybe you've begun to see that and believe that the, the trouble that you're experiencing is unseen. Maybe you've begun to feel that your prayers are being ignored, disregarded, unseen, overlooked, ignored. This is the despairing, despondent Christian. You know, significantly, this is exactly how God's people in Israel felt when they were being addressed here in Isaiah 40, which Brian just read for us so well. So Isaiah 40 comes on the heels of a chapter in which God has warned his people about the coming exile that they're going to experience in Babylon. And so here's what's going to happen. Chapter 39 tells us a foreign, pagan, people who don't fear God are going to come in to God's place from Babylon. They're going to destroy God's place, and they're going to take captive God's people. God's people were about to be marched out of God's place into a faraway, foreign place without a temple, without a king, and without, it would feel, any hope. And this exile would lead Israel to entertain some very dark thoughts about their God. This is what we see there, captured in verse 27. Did you see it? Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? 
You can hear their struggle, can't you? There in verse 27. In their exile, Israel abandoned a narrative of faith and they have taken on, they've adopted a narrative of despair. So when real, legitimate, seemingly unending suffering came, they stopped rehearsing God's past faithfulness and they began rehearsing what they saw as his present neglect. When it felt like God was blind to their suffering, they became blind to God's character. Listen to what they say. They say, my way is hidden from the Lord. In other words, God doesn't see me. That's what they feel. They say, my case is disregarded by my God. Literally, the word there is justice. My justice has been ignored. The justice owed to me is not being given to me. I've been violated. God does nothing. My case is being overlooked. They say, God doesn't see me. And if, even if he does see me, he obviously doesn't care about what he sees. I pray and I pray and I pray and nothing changes. He's, he made promises to me. I remember those promises, but he's clearly forgotten about them. At least he doesn't care that he made them. How could God let this happen? How could my God do this to me? I've been disregarded. I've been unseen. I've been ignored. Sounds and feels familiar to us, doesn't it? Isaiah 40 presents to us what is unfortunately a universal sickness. Experienced long ago in Israel, experienced now in our very own lives. And that experience, that sickness is despair. A loss of hope. And what we see is that times of despair, they're times of great danger. Because times of despair are times of great temptation. As we see in verse 27, as we see in our own experience, despair can bring with it some very dark thoughts, can it? Not just about ourselves, but about God himself. So we need a way out. And thankfully, the Bible does not give a diagnosis without also giving a remedy. So Isaiah 40 tells us of a common affliction, but it also gives us antidotes. Two antidotes, really, that I see. So what are they? So what can we do in times of despair? I want to look at Isaiah 40 and lay out two things that I think we can do in this universal sickness, in the midst of this experience of despair. And that is we can remember and we can rest. Remember and rest. That's what I want us to see in the larger chapter. In the midst of despair, Christian, let me encourage you to remember. To remember. You know, one thing every single one of us have in common is that we are getting older. Doesn't matter how old you are, you're aging. And one of the unfortunate things that aging, about aging, is that it doesn't come to us alone. It brings other things with it, doesn't it? So not only does aging bring with it a loss of physical strength, sometimes it brings with it a loss of mental strength, the, the loss of the ability to remember things as they are. One of the things we have to be aware of is that despair, similarly, it doesn't come to us alone. It typically brings with it long-term memory loss. One way despair works is that it will cut you off from all past memories of God's faithfulness and have you focus intently on the present felt experience of God's absence. 
This is why right after the complaint in verse 27, at the first sign of God's people waning in their memory, Isaiah moves straight into undiluted reminder. That's what he's doing here in this chapter. Look at verse 28, right on the heels of verse 27. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God's people are in exile. They are in despair. They have lost hope, which means they have lost all sense of who God actually is. So their first task, Isaiah knows, is to remember what they've always known and what they've always confessed to be true about God, but which they're tempted to forget in this present moment of despair. And how does Isaiah do this? How does he, how does he get them to remember? Questions. That's what he does. Fourteen questions. You see it all throughout the chapter there, don't you? Just look at the first, uh, just look at the first words of all these paragraphs. Who, 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 what, whom, all these things. I want you to be thinking and answering these questions, clarifying questions about God. I think we can learn something about this, even in our own help for ourselves, and even in our own help for one another in times of despair. You know, I think about this. I, I'm a big sports fan to my great emotional harm. Maybe you can sympathize. So I think about some of the times when I sit and grumble and complain about my beloved Atlanta Braves. Sorry for all you NL East fans in the mid-Atlantic region. So maybe I'm watching the Braves. Maybe we've hit a rut during the season. Maybe we've lost a few games in a row. Maybe, maybe we've let one of the faces of the franchise walk again in free agency for the second offseason in a row. I don't know. I begin to question everything. Well, a wise person, a wise friend, notice, uh, noticing my melancholy state, they would come alongside me in these moments, not to lecture me necessarily, but maybe they would offer a few questions to, to my all of a sudden confident assertions of my team. Okay, so your team is no good, they would say. Well, did, did they not win the division? Uh, think back to 2021. Did they, not, did they not win the division then? Did they not go to the World Series? Did they not, did they not win the World Series? Tell me. Tell me, Seth, I can't remember. Who finished ahead of your team that's so, this team that's so terrible? Who finished ahead of them? You think they have no talent? Did five of their players not win Silver Slugger awards? Did, did Tyler Matzik not strike out the side with no outs and a runner on third with a runner on lead in the NLCS? Did they not hit 239 home runs in one season? Did Jorge Soler hit a ball in Houston that's still in orbit as we speak? Your general manager has no wisdom Huh? Did you not see him sign Eddie Rosario and Jorge Soler and Jock Peterson right before the trade deadline? There's three players which carried us into the playoffs to a World Series title. I think about those questions. The answer to which is, okay, yeah. And I think, okay, yeah, they're pretty great. In my sports despair, I become willing to believe all kinds of things that they're just they're actually not true. My perception of reality becomes really blurry when I'm in this state of despair. Times of despair and our suffering, they're dangerous because by their very nature, they're times that blur our vision. They challenge our beliefs about the God that we've confessed. So here's a warning. When you're experiencing hopelessness, make sure that you are remaining clear on what's true. If you feel despair, be cognizant of the temptation to believe wrong things about God. 
our first task in the midst of despondency is to remember who God actually is, not necessarily who we feel him to be in that moment. Here in Isaiah 40, the prophet knows that we need to remember these things. He knows that we need to remember two things particularly when we're despairing. I'll give you these two things. As usual, the outline's getting confusing. Here's two things, though. You need to remember God's greatness, and you need to remember God's goodness, his greatness and his goodness. Remember God's greatness. How does Isaiah meet the people in despair? He shows them God. We already saw this in verse 28, didn't we? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. So listen, despairing, hopeless Christian, I know your mind is overwhelmed with your current troubles. They're blurring your vision of hope. It's hard to recall anything other than the pain that you feel. But right where you sit, Isaiah is reminding you, if you'll let him here in Isaiah 40, he's reminding you of some very important things about God, which your despair will tempt you to forget. Notice, Isaiah wants you to remember God's great power. He wants you to remember that God's power is unlimited. That's what he's saying here in Isaiah 40. Listen closely to the questions and think about the answers. Look back in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? What's your answer? Who is it? Who wields that kind of power? It's only the Lord, your God. That's who. Christian, with the, with the ease with which you measure out your cooking oil, God measures out oceans. And you would, as you would mark out the boundaries of a house and the foundation, he marks off the boundaries of the universe. As you would enclose a flower bed, he encloses the lands of the earth. The Lord, our God, church, he weighs mountains with less effort than we weigh out our coffee in the morning. He does these things with unimaginably powerful and easy competence. We need, Isaiah says, we need to remember this. We must not forget God's power. Look down in verse 25. We have more questions to honestly consider. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. What's the answer? To whom will you compare God? Who comes, who comes to your mind when you think, okay, Yahweh, the Lord, is kind of like this? The answer is no one. No one comes to mind. And you need proof? Look at verse 26. Lift up your eyes and see. So he's directing our eyes to the cosmos. Who created these? He who brings out their hosts by a number. He calls them by name. By, his, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Isaiah turns our eyes, turns the eye of the despairing Christian to the skies to contemplate the stars, the billions. There are billions. You know this? Not only billions of stars, there are billions of galaxies of billions of stars. And he says, tell me this. Who created them? He did. Who brings them out? He does. Who calls every single one of them by name? Only he does. Why is not one of them missing? Because of his great power. So listen, despairing Christian, 
we who are tempted to feel unseen and forgotten by this God, Isaiah would have you think of this. He would say, how many, how many stars are there in the universe? Okay, let's start there. And we say, well, we don't know. We're still counting. There are too many. The point is, he knows. He knows. This is how Isaiah reasons. Listen, if, if there are billions of more stars than there are people, and if your Lord personally knows and ensures the well-being of each star, well then, Christian, you see? How could he possibly be guilty of forgetting one of his people? He can't. How could he forget those made not, not with the glory of stars, but with the glory of his own beloved son? I know despair is heavy, it's blinding, but here's what you can remember in your despair. You never have to doubt God's capacity. His strength to see you and remember you is unlimited. Isaiah says there's, there's more about God's greatness that we need to remember. We need to remember his power. We also need to remember his wisdom. His wisdom, Isaiah says, is unsearchable. So who among us, who among us hasn't been in a situation that's made us think, okay, what, what in the world is the Lord doing here? How could this situation right here possibly be according to the plan of God? How could, how could this thing possibly be best for his glory and my good? These are good, natural questions in a fallen world. But what Isaiah is getting at is that these questions are questions which they themselves need to be interrogated. This is what he does. Look at verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? I hope you're noticing something that's actually easily overlooked when we go through passages like this, maybe a passage that you're familiar with. And that is that in the midst of hard things, we tend to ask what kind of questions? Why? Why? But what questions does Isaiah ask? What questions does the Bible ask in the midst of hard things? Who? Who? This is instructive for us. In our despair, we're tempted to be dominated by questions of why. The Bible would have us instead be dominated by questions of who? Okay, who, let's just pause. Who exactly is in charge? Notice how Isaiah addresses our questions about God's actions, our permissions. He, he, Isaiah answers our why questions with, uh, with a roll call. You see this? All right, so he says, all right, all right, come here. All right, uh, just a raise of hand. All right, who, who here, which one of you all was consulted by God? when he created these things, and he looks out, doesn't see any hands. Okay, well, okay, well, which one, who's, who's the one, which one of you all is the one counseling the Holy Spirit? Who, which one of you taught God what justice actually looks like? Whom did God learn justice from? Okay, who, who among us, who was it that was walking along the path of life and as you're walking along the path of life, you found God on the side of the road, despondent and confused and wondering which way to go. And you instructed him. You said, God, this is the way that you go. This is the, the straight path. And the point, it's, it's obvious, isn't it? 
The Lord, Isaiah wants us to remember, he lacks no knowledge. He has all wisdom. No one has ever shown God something that he hasn't already seen. No one has ever clarified an idea for the Lord, which he had remained a little bit fuzzy up until that moment. The Lord has never consulted an outside source in order to make up for an inheritant limited knowledge because his wisdom has no limits. His understanding, verse 28 says, is unsearchable. Listen, of course there are times, especially in suffering, we, we need not make light of this. Of course there are times that make us think, I just don't understand all of God's ways. And you know what the Bible says? Of course you don't. I don't know why you expect it to. He's God. He's actually God. The scary thing is not that you can't explain him. The scary thing would be if you could. He is infinite. We are finite. His ways belong to eternity. Our ways belong to time. His purposes are universe encompassing. Ours are properly local and limited. So remember this if you're despairing or maybe counseling someone in their despair. You never have to doubt God's wisdom. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah just keeps going. He would have us remember his, God's greatness and his power and his wisdom. He would also have us remember God's great preeminence. His preeminence. That is, God's worth is unmatched. So I wonder, have you ever been in a season where you just couldn't quite see how the Lord is, is quite so set apart, quite so special, why he's so unique? This is one of the, the challenges of God's people in exile. It's one of our challenges in a world that's not yet what it will be. And that is the temptation to, to lose the sense of the reality of God's matchless worth. We're tempted to, in our despair, in our trials, we're tempted to see other people and other paths, maybe even other religions, as plausible routes through this mess. Isaiah, though, will have none of this. Look at verse 15. Behold, he says, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor, uh, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So I just think about it. Just think about maybe in your current season of life, maybe what you're tempted towards. What is it? What is it that's got you so despairing, so despondent? What has you feeling hopeless? Maybe it's the current climate of the culture. Maybe it's that you look around and see the nations raging. Maybe you see world leaders flexing their power. What Isaiah says is, he says, look, look out into all the world, take in all the superpowers, all the threats, all the weapons of war, take it as it were kind of in one large heap and hand it to your God. And you know what he does with it? He goes, kind of dips his finger in it and takes a drop and just, just kind of flicks that drop off of the end of his finger. These so-called superpowers of the fallen world, Isaiah says, they are as nothing before your God. In fact, they are less than nothing. And emptiness, that's what he says. Christian, your God is preeminent. There is no one higher. There is no one more beautiful. There is no one more worthy of praise. In fact, 
This is what Isaiah is saying. If you made it your goal, the goal of your life, to offer some sufficient, proportionate offering to this God, what you could do is that you could gather every single one of the largest trees on earth. I think this is what he's referring to with, the, with Lebanon here, known for their big cedars. Think the, the redwoods of California. Go and gather every single one of those from the earth. On top of that, pile every single living animal. Offer it as a living sacrifice to the Lord your God. And guess what? You're still just, you're still just holding a candle to the sun. He is preeminent. It doesn't touch him. There is no offering proportionate to him. There is no offering that could actually display his worthiness of every offering. This, by the way, is why idolatry is so dumb. We create and we give our lives to dead things while a true God, a real God, is a preeminent God is over here actually existing. Look there in verse 18. He says, to whom will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? Uh, with what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold, casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. I love this. Isaiah, he doesn't even criticize idol making, does he? He just describes it. And, and when you've heard about the one true God, all you have to do is hear like a clear explanation of idol making to realize how stupid it is. And this is what he's doing all throughout Isaiah 40. Here's the truth to remember. Despairing Christian, you never have, you never have to doubt God's worthiness of your devotion. He is worthy. Whatever it is that you're suffering through, he's worthy to get through it. His worth is unmatched. In other words, there is no greener grass on the other side of this God. Listen, when you wait on the Lord and refuse to settle for man-made idols for your contentment, for your fulfillment, for your purpose, the end of your life, when you refuse to take refuge in created things, what Isaiah is saying is that you are not missing out on anything. When you endure hardship for the sake of Jesus, when you set your eyes on things yet to come, things yet unseen, when all these, all these temporary pleasures are being offered to you and you look past them to things unseen, what Isaiah is saying is that you are not being foolish. He is worth it. He is worth your endurance, Christian. Nothing and no one else is, and he's going to prove it to you soon. And this leads to one last element of God's greatness, and that is despairing Christian you must remember God's great sovereignty. Remember his great sovereignty. It is unrivaled. You know, as, we, as we've been mentioning, the context here of this chapter is Israel in exile. God's chosen people who had lived in God's chosen place, they're now adrift. And as they're outside of God's place, it gets them thinking. They're thinking, they're experiencing this hardship, and they're thinking, what, what could this possibly mean? What could this possibly, be, possibly mean other than the fact that the king of Babylon has the upper hand on the God of Israel? Think about what's happening in their minds in the midst of their struggle. God's people, all of a sudden not being in charge in their little realm of earth, has led them to wonder if God was really in charge in heaven. 
their lack of worldly influence, the abundance of persecution and opposition, it all led to despair and to the temptation to find some other earthly leader who could reestablish their place and their influence. You know, maybe, maybe if we think about it, the thing that's prompting a lot of despair in times like those we're living in is that what's happening is that we're simply coming to terms with our current exile. We're grasping for some kind of control, and what that leads to is a questioning of God's control. And to this, Isaiah speaks. The existence of worldly opposition has never once threatened the reign of your God. Threats don't exist to our God. He has no rivals. Look at verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Don't you love that? Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Isaiah would have us remember, listen, despite all appearances, your God is alive and well and reigning. The worldly power that you fear so much today, he'll remove it tomorrow. All he has to do is breathe. As soon as you think, you look out and you see that next superpower and you think that they're firmly planted in the ground of history, he'll blow on them and they'll be carried away, Isaiah says, like stubble. So here's a great truth to remember. You, you never have to doubt God's sovereignty. His reign is and it will forever be unrivaled. It's unrivaled. So Christian, when you, when you despair, when you feel hopeless, you must remember God. First and foremost, you must remember his greatness. So listen, when we're, when we're tempted as we are, we're tempted to worry when we tie ourselves in knots about the current state of things in, in your life or relationships or in your own heart or in the whole world. Bring this one question to mind and then answer it. Who is like my God? Ask that question and answer it. Because there's nothing his power can't do. There's nothing about your situation that he doesn't know how to handle. There is nothing better or more satisfying than him out there for you. There is nothing and no one who has an upper hand on what he has planned for your life. In our despair, let's remember the greatness of God. That's what Isaiah lays out for us. He also lays out another thing, and that is we must remember God's goodness. In our despair, remember God's greatness, and in our despair, remember God's goodness. So we've gotten a, a hearty dose so far, gotten a hearty dose of God's greatness. His infiniteness, his preeminence, his boundlessness. And this is wonderful and this is necessary as we've already seen. If you don't have a concept for this, get it. You need this. This is who God is. But you know, I wonder if the struggle for most of us in the midst of our despair, I wonder if the struggle for most of us is not remembering God's greatness, but remembering God's goodness. 
for many of us in our despair, we, we, we get his transcendence. That's easy, right? He feels big and he feels far. What's not so easy sometimes is his nearness. It's his closeness. If that's the case for you, then here's another thing for you to remember. And you can sing it with me. God is great. God is, he's good. You know this. Remember God's good care for those who are weak. Think about that. You feel weak? Remember God's good care for those who are weak. Listen, listen to what verse 29 says about this all-powerful, mighty God. Isaiah 40, 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. This, <laughs> isn't that good news? Listen, as great and as preeminent and as sovereign and as mighty and exalted as God is, he is not too great for one thing. You know what it is? He is not too great to care. That's what the Bible says. God is not only great, he is also good. And in his goodness, the all-powerful one is one who shares his strength with the ones who need it. Do you need God's strength? Are you feeling that? He will share it with you. Unlike many earthly authorities, the Lord does not despise weakness. He does not look down on those who, who don't have the strength to make it themselves, pick, up, pick themselves up by their bootstraps. The Lord looks for weakness, and he moves toward it to share his strength. We didn't read it, but we see this earlier in the chapter. Look, look back at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. Comfort, God says, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Look down at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The whole point of this chapter, the whole point of God addressing his people in their suffering and exile is to announce that this great God is a God who desires to use his great strength to bring great comfort to his greatly suffering people. That's what he's doing. In other words, God is where despair goes to die. Because what Isaiah is saying is that we can trust that God uses his greatness for our good. And we see this no more clearly than in the gospel, right? Jesus, the preeminent son of God, the eternal, all-powerful, and now embodied divine wisdom, Jesus has used his greatness for our good. He used his strength to enter our weakness. He used his wisdom to confound the works of the devil. He turned his matchless worth. What, for what, did, God, for what did, did Jesus use his matchless worth? He used it as a matchless, perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice. In Jesus Christ, God substituted his perfect self for sinners like us. Jesus took on the condemnation that we deserve so that it wouldn't fall on us. And now, the gospel says, anyone who would confess their sin 
anyone who would turn from their sin and place their trust in Christ as their perfect substitute, they'll be counted as righteous and saved and redeemed. The weak will receive their strength. And with this salvation comes the promise of a future than the, than the one that we have, better than the one that we have here and now. So we cannot miss the fact that Israel's exile, their promised exile, came with a promised return. And so does ours, church. So does ours. Maybe this is a season in which you're feeling the weightiness of exile more than you ever have. If so, this is a time to take on and enter into the promise that God brings his people home out of exile. God's people will not remain exiles forever. Israel wouldn't, and neither will we. God will deliver them once again into the promised land, and so he will deliver us. So until then, in our despair, we have these two things to do. We remember, remember all these things of God's greatness, God's goodness. But secondly, we also rest. And here's where I'll have us end. We remember and we rest. All right, so I know we've taken in, we've received a lot of information, a lot of knowledge about the Lord this morning, but here's the goal. Now we move from knowledge to trust, from fact to faith, from worrying about the world to waiting on the Lord. This is what we're doing. This is the Christian life. The first step out of despair is to remember what's actually true. The next step is to actually live in it. You gotta know what's true and you have to live like it's true. What does this look like? Look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Maybe you notice verses 30 and 31 there, they give, you, give us a contrast. So as he closes, Isaiah wants us to have two groups of people in mind. So on the one hand are the youths, those who are young. That is the, the healthiest among us, the people in their prime, the ones you'd expect to be strong, those with seemingly unlimited strength and energy. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, well, it's those who have no obvious inherent strength but are simply waiting, waiting on the Lord. The question for us, which one of these people is equipped for despair? Those with their own strength or those who wait for and trust in this God? Isaiah points it out. I mean, those with strength are really strong. Think about it. Even the youths, even our strongest ones, think about those. But his point, even them, even them in their prime, they will eventually, they will inevitably be overcome by life, won't they? Some of you already know that. Some of us are yet to find that out. Even the strongest of human strength will weaken. That's Isaiah's point. There's a reason we call it 
call one of the stages of life the prime of life because there's some point at which it's downhill. One way or another, at one time or another, human strength will fail. It could be inner struggles. It could be circumstances of life. The point is that the strongest among us, the youth, those bounding with energy and strength, even they'll grow weary. Even they'll be beaten down. Even they'll fall with exhaustion. So what do we do? Well, look at those who wait on the Lord. To them, the Lord promises his strength. He will sustain them. In his timing, in his way, the Lord will give his people strength. They will, Isaiah says, they'll mount up on wings like eagles. Don't you love this picture? Not of being crushed under the weight of the world, the weight of despair, but of rising and flying above it. I think we should take heart from this truth today, church, that maybe, maybe you're a person who's encouraged by this. The Lord doesn't need your strength. Maybe that's one way to think of it. He doesn't need your strength. You need his. You need his. And he has promised to give it to those who know their need for it. So listen, Christian, despairing Christian, if you want to run again, in faith, then rest in the one who has inexhaustible strength. If you want to walk again, then trust in the one who shares his strength with you. If you want to fly again in faith, then wait in the shadow of his wings. Live in your great weakness with great confidence, with, confidence, with great eager suspense of the Lord giving you his strength in his time. We all despair. There are seasons in which we all lose hope and we struggle to see the Lord as he is. I would just encourage us, this is what we can do together. This is what we can encourage one another in our relationships, even in our friendships. We encourage one another to remember and to rest. One very simple, very practical way that we remember and that we rest is the weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper together. In the Lord's Supper, we come out of self-reliance and self-sustaining effort and self-strength and self-justification, and we come to trust in and rest in Christ alone. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, we welcome you to communion with Christ and with his people here at the Lord's table. Even if you're here and you're not a member of this particular church, but maybe you're a member of another gospel-preaching church that preaches the gospel, you've heard it here today, and you're allowed to take the Lord's Supper there, then we would welcome you to take it here with us. Just a reminder, we have some helpful notes in the bulletin on what it means to participate in the Lord's Supper if you have questions. I would just say, if you're here this morning and... Contrary to walking by faith, you profess to be a Christian, but you're very intentionally living, not living under the lordship of Christ. You're simply not turning away from sin. Then we would encourage you to pause before participating in this. Use this as an opportunity rather to repent. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You know yourself not to be a Christian. And we would just say we're so grateful that you would choose to be here with us this morning. There's nowhere else we'd rather you be in all the world, and here with us. At the same time, the Lord's Supper is not 
a celebration that you should participate in, at least not yet, because it'd be celebrating something that's not yet true of you. That is faith in Christ. So even as we celebrate and participate in the Lord's Supper, we'd encourage you to contemplate what it means to have faith in Christ, what it means to turn from your own strength, to turn to the Lord overall, to repent and receive salvation. And before we come to the table together, we always take a few minutes of reflection, a few minutes to think about and pray and confess sin to the Lord. So that's what we'll do now. Uh, we'll take just a minute, and I'll give you a minute to pray uh, for yourself uh, and to, to the Lord yourself. And then Andrew will come up and lead us in a prayer of confession together before we celebrate. So let's pray now.